Hallelujah. Yes, Father, we are here celebrating and gathering in the name of Jesus Christ. When His work on Calvary, in His incarnation, in His victory over death and the grave, in the fullness of atonement satisfied by His broken body and shed blood, Lord, in all of these things, the overflowing blessings of Your salvation are ours. Lord, we thank You that in these we have received the precious gift of eternal life and hope that survives the strongest of tests and even the worst of curses that we deserved as a, as a result of our sin. Because these penalties were paid on the back and on the brow and on the pierced feet and hands of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace upon grace. We have received mercy and now, Lord, as we have sung songs celebrating these things, we also pray that you would awaken our hearts today through these songs that we have sung to the reason for our praise. Awaken our souls as we open your word to the objective truth and revelation of Christ revealed and applied in all the pages of Scripture, even as we touch on one bit today. May it expand our love and appreciation and understanding of the whole by the power of the Spirit and awaken our hearts as well to behold Jesus Christ and the elements of your table laid before us today, that we would be mindful of the great cost of our salvation and the precious gift of mercy paid for in the body and blood of Jesus, our high priest, our sacrifice, our king, our prophet, the risen and ascended Savior, the sovereign who rules over all and is even now making his enemies his footstool, as his kingdom advances through history unto that glorious consummation where we will gather together with all the saints who have gone before and all the saints to come at the great marriage supper of the Lamb, where the brief glimpse of feasting that we participate in this morning will give way to its prophesied fullness in glory, with no sin or stain of the curse, with no sorrow and no corruption, but only the glorious presence the unmitigated glory, the incredible power and beauty and majesty of the habitation of ourselves, the redeemed, with our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would emphasize these things to our heart and mind as we open your scriptures today by the power of the indwelling Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. This morning, by the grace of God, we have the incredible privilege of gathering in the name of Jesus to lift up his name, to open his word, to feast at his table, and then to feast together in the praise of what we have in praise of him for what we've received in the blessing of our great salvation. Hallelujah. We also have the glorious privilege of welcoming to the Lord's table recently baptized in our congregation among us. We had a baptism service last month wherein that public ceremony and seal of the covenant was pictured in, the, in those who had confessed their faith and turned to Christ, confessed their sins, going under the water, symbolizing their death to the old life and their death in sin buried in Christ, and then rising again from the water, symbolizing resurrection in Him. And now these glorious pictures of redemption are here further pictured in the second ordinance, if you will, the Lord's table, where Christ's body and blood represented by the bread and the cup, will be partaken by those who have now partaken by the power of the Spirit in the salvation 
unto eternal life supplied in Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is slain. Hallelujah. This morning we turn to the scriptures to center our attention, to ground our faith, to equip the saints, and to convict the lost. We do so in Jude today, 16 through 24. So turn there with me as you're able. The aim of this morning's message is to magnify the mercy of God in light of the fear worthy of Him. Mercy and fear. To magnify the mercy of God in light of the fear worthy of Him. We've been in a little mini-series in the book of Jude comparing two categories. One, the ungodly. Secondly, the holy. And today wraps up this little series within the book of Jude as we conclude with Jude's remarks, identifying the ungodly again, and then equipping and exhorting the holy. With that, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word today? And behold, his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Consider the scriptures of Jude 16 through 24, now in your hearing. This is the word of God. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, we'll conclude with the last uh, verse of Jude 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. If you are a believer in the sound of my voice, I'm certain that your soul resonated with the power of these words. We've covered them on multiple occasions but they strike powerfully to the heart and soul no matter how many, many times we revisit. As we consider just these four modifiers or adjectives describing Jesus Christ, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, does our heart not ring with an amen as Jude has written here, recognizing the greatness and the power, the majesty and the mercy of our Lord and Savior? The soul who has been transformed, regenerate, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, resonates with the Word of God. He recognizes, according to the fear of the Lord, that the mercy he has received has come at the cost of the shed blood of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ made flesh. Today completes our Jude mini-series, comparing and contrasting descriptions of the godly along the lines of what I just gave you, versus admonitions to the whole, uh, of the ungodly, excuse me, versus admonitions to the holy, according to the description I just gave you, and a similar concepts that we see in the text. Verses 16 through 24, if we just made two columns, on the one hand said the ungodly are marked by these things, meanwhile on the other, the holy are called to do the following, we have a way to organize our text, and thus we have approached this text for some weeks now. We're reminded that in so doing, Jude is encouraging the church to oppose and to stand against anything or anyone 
who would seek to diminish or deny the glory, the majesty, the dominion and authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And by doing this, we will be obedient to the call that he gives us in verse 3. He finds it necessary to write to us, the church today as it was then, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. How do we contend for the faith? Well, we recognize what is ungodly. And we take the admonitions, the instructions to the holy seriously. And in doing this, we are better equipped to recognize the errors and those who would seek to twist and undermine the scriptures, to distract and to separate the flock, and to inculcate the true teaching and understanding of God's word with heresy. The kingdom of God is advancing, saints. It has been advancing since day one. From our vantage point in church history, we are witnessing 2,000 years of the sufficiency of Jude's words and the rest of Scripture to guide and guard the church. There has been a remnant worshiping Jesus Christ as we do by His grace alone today for 2,000 plus years after these words were written. This proves that these words are sufficient. Just 25 verses and of course their companion texts in all the New Testament to equip the church in spite of her enemies. The borders of the kingdom of God are constantly assailed this side of glory by those who would seek to undermine the faith. But the word of God is stronger still. The word of God is stronger still. And the word of God needs no modification, no adjustment, no updates, no um, adding and subtracting, no alteration. No, the word of God stands powerfully as a two-edged sharp sword piercing asunder on its own merits on its own foundations forever, without end, and for all time. For this study, we've organized Jews' closing instructions in the two columns I mentioned before. Who are the ungodly? They are the grumblers, the malcontents. They follow their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters. They show favoritism to gain advantage. They're scoffers. They follow ungodly passions. They cause divisions. They are worldly people. And today, in particular, we consider that the ungodly are devoid of the Spirit, and they're stumblers. Well, on the other hand, Jude informs the holy to pursue the following. Remember the predictions of the apostles, he has said. He calls us beloved. He exhorts us to build up our most holy faith, to pray in the Spirit, to keep ourselves in the love of God, to wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, to have mercy on those who doubt, to save others by snatching them out of the fire, and then on this column, today in particular, we consider we are called to show mercy with faith, with fear, excuse me, and secondly, to hate even the garments stained by the flesh. So with that, I'll give you a heading and two major points. Jude emphasizes distinctions between the following. Point one, people devoid of the Spirit versus those who show mercy with fear. And second major point, those who stumble versus those who hate even the garments stained by the flesh. Our outline is very simple underneath this, as has been our pattern for this mini-series. We'll simply ask the question accordingly, what do people devoid of the Spirit look like, according to Jude and companion texts in Scripture? What does showing mercy with fear look like? What do those who stumble look like or stumbling look like? And what do those who hate the garments stained by the flesh look like? Or what does this look like? So first of all, people devoid of the Spirit, versus those who show mercy with fear. Jude draws a distinction, or he recognizes, he highlights differences between the two. 
What do those devoid of the Spirit look like? Again, in verse 19, in speaking of the ungodly, our author says, It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. His, his book, however small, is quite exhaustive in describing aspects of the ungodly in terms similar to what we just read. For instance, go back to verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Who are they? Again, ungodly people. And what do they do? Pervert, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The ungodly do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, although we and our mere human perception might be fooled on the outside. Someone may seem like a Christian, a good person, spiritually minded to us, but they may well be devoid of the Spirit. This heightens the stakes for discernment. How can we tell the difference, and by what measure ought we judge ourselves and others in this regard? Well, there are helpful admonitions continuing in verse 8, yet in like manner these people also, so that would be those devoid of the Spirit, who are they? And what do they rely on? Well, they rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. And they blaspheme the glorious ones. What do people devoid of the Spirit look like? Summarizing and applying Jews' words, there are those who trust their intuition or their human perception rather than basing their thoughts, their actions, their worldview on the revelation of the Lord. This is one application drawn from the text, intuition versus revelation. Those who re remain constrained by their human perception, experience, or the world around them, cultural norms, their own reasoning, logic divorced from the premise of God's order of truth for the universe, wisdom, or the consensus of self-proclaimed experts, which really are wolves in sheep's clothing. They do not base their claim to authority on the ultimate authority, Jesus Christ. Those who remain constrained by these kinds of influence and therefore, are, and therefore do not measure up to the standard of truth and God's scripture, these are those who show marks of being devoid of the Holy Spirit. These comprise the frame, or these things that we mentioned before, like cultural norms, reasoning, wisdom, consensus, perception, experience, these comprise the frame of reference, the ultimate authority, and the ethical standard for the unbeliever, for the unregenerate, for those devoid of the Holy Spirit. By contrast, when one is born again, we celebrated the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. We celebrated the born-again status of new believers at our recent baptism. What is one thing that fundamentally changes when we are filled with the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit, changed, or as the Bible says, Jesus himself in John 3, born again? When one is born again, an essential evidence of this heart transformation and the indwelling or the presence of the Holy Spirit is a submission to the authority of God's word as superior to our subjective or personal ideas or notions. Paul, or Paul, he does as well, but Jude writes with authority, and he refers to an authority. He has encouraged us, he says, Beloved, the, remember, you must remember, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the authority to which Jude points. The apostles of Jesus Christ were anointed, that is, they were commissioned, they were given a special job, 
and they are also given the ability to proclaim and apply the truth of the gospel. That is why the words of Paul, the most comprehensive, arguably, of those who expounded on the nature of salvation, must be heeded and must be considered the authority for our understanding of the truth. This is why Jude, in his book, bears weight and authority, equipping us and preparing us to recognize the difference between the ungodly and the holy. People who are filled with the Holy Spirit recognize this. They have a standard of authority in the Word of God. People devoid of the Spirit continue with their best ideas, their personal experience, the notions of those around them, the latest thing that tends to oppress them at any given time. There are telltale signs of people devoid of the Spirit. Throughout the text, we've noted a few of them. The description is generalized towards the end, but it is specific all the way through. What are telltale signs of those devoid of the Spirit? Well, they are those who are susceptible to and often deceived by things along, thinking along the lines of Cain, Balaam's error, or Korah's rebellion. We've mentioned this before. Three expressions of rebellion. Cain, a law unto himself. Balaam, smuggling in paganism and uh, sin as a way as leverage to manipulate. Korah, declaring independence, autonomy from God's appointed authority. Of course, these in, uh, different illustrations are described by Jude as waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, wandering stars. It strikes me by way of application that in judging fruit of those devoid of the Spirit, sometimes it takes some time. It is good to remain, you know, with a judge, or it's good to practice the judgment of charity. That is to give somebody the benefit of the doubt, to not be a hyper-skeptic or cynical about anyone's claim to Christianity or things of that nature. But on the other side, we need to balance that with sound discernment. And as we pray and consider that the Lord is the foundation and His Word for all things and give our experience with individuals and ideas some time, and as we're vigilant along these lines, God will equip us through His Word and Spirit applying it to recognize those waterless clouds. They hang around, but ultimately they're like trees twice dead, producing no fruit or wild waves, those who are not rooted and grounded in much of anything. A wave appears to have a direction, but it can change with any little wind. So as we see ideas and people changing with every little wind and influence in the culture of the world around us, uh, we can recognize that these are not grounded, but are likely wandering stars. We can exhort and encourage them to return to books like Jude, and find their grounding in the Holy Spirit and what He has revealed in His Scriptures. These are telltale signs of those devoid of the Spirit. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Paul expounds this distinction between the things of the Spirit and the things of the flesh in great detail in his epistle to the Romans. And this is one of those highlightable portions. And he uh, helps us in this regard with verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So do you notice here? You can keep those columns going. Those who are holy or have the indwelling of the Spirit, what evidence of His presence might you find? They put to death the deeds of the body. They're at war with their carnal nature and desires. They take a stand against those things instead of looking for ways to justify them or indulge them of the flesh and the old man of sinfulness, the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. 
He goes on. For all, 14, who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Here, Paul is speaking to identity. Those who are filled with the Spirit, not devoid of the Spirit, find their identity firmly in their relationship to the Almighty. They remember the moment, young people, remember your moment when you were baptized. And they know at that day was symbolized in my experience that I've received a new name, a new identity, a new family, a new relationship with the Lord. And therefore, I do not have to be a slave to, deceived by, or blown about by every wind of culture that is in a horrible identity crisis, so much so that they consider permanent and irre irreparable solutions for it today. One thinks of the sexual revolution we're going through right now and this obsession with gender and identity and sexuality and so forth, and different groups that rally for their cause, and the so-called uh, civil rights movement of our day, which basically proceeds on this axiom, as far as I can tell. We have an obligation to champion the cause of any marginalized group, absolute morality notwithstanding. We have an obligation to champion the cause of any marginalized group, absolute morality notwithstanding. That is a recipe, that is a license to bring in all kinds of perversion and then make it a virtue to celebrate it. Why are we living in days like this? It's because that last part of the clause, absolute morality, has been disregarded for the preferences and personal inclinations and the experience, the sovereignty of the self, the lordship of the flesh. But those, and that is a mark of those devoid of the spirit, but those who have the spirit of God, they know where their identity is. They've been adopted by grace and by mercy according to the work of Jesus Christ. And they, in this adoption, have received the Spirit. And this Spirit's indwelling now causes them to cry out, The Father, the Heavenly Father, is my Father. Abba, personal. He's my Dad, if you will. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, Paul says. And if children, then heirs, heirs those who receive a greater promise and a fullness of treasure and the estate of glory, fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. This is the hope of riches, the hope of the future, and is the identity. It answers who I am and what I receive. The gospel provides the answer. Who I am, an adopted son, by the mercy of Jesus Christ, to the perfect heavenly Father, by virtue of the gospel, what will I receive? The same inheritance that Jesus Christ received when he received the rewards of his suffering upon his resurrection and ascension unto glory, we will rule and reign with him one day. This is what we will receive. Provided we suffer with him, Paul says, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So do you see the marks of those devoid of the Spirit versus filled with the Spirit? Those filled with the Spirit are willing to suffer. They're willing to suffer the persecution and the mockery that this world would send our way when we identify as children of God that the Bible is sufficient and absolute in its moral authority and that our future and our investments are not in this life but in the one to come. No such thing exists, the material cynic says and skeptic today, the pagan who worships his own time and experience here and replaces the ultimate authority of the sovereign creator who without excuse has revealed himself and all of creation, but these, the Bible has identified as scoffers. But those who are filled with the Spirit, who have been indwelt by the Spirit, are different. 
They don't live by their intuition. They live according to the revelation of the Lord in his word. They don't find their identity in the things of the world, but instead in their relationship to God through Jesus Christ. There are so many examples around us of people and ideas devoid of the Spirit, but I thought of one that a few of us remarked on this week. There is, as far as I can tell, an apostate congregation here in our, in our uh, community who had a sign up this last week that said something along the lines, spiritual or religious, all are welcome here. So have you heard that phrase? You know, I'm spiritual but not religious. What is this phrase and what does it convey? Well, this phrase is based on a self, you know, just, basically a, a self-referential would be the technical term, spirituality. It's New Ageism, basically. It says that I reserve the right to customize what my mystical experiences and my understanding of what spirituality is. And anything that places a thou shalt or a thou shalt not, or this is God and that is not, or you are not God and you must bow and repent of your sins, ooh, that's religion. I don't like that. It places a, re a restriction upon me, and I'm offended by the obligation of the gospel, which says, according to the standard of perfect righteousness, you must repent and believe. No, I, I don't, I'm not really comfortable with that. Instead, I'm spiritual, but not quote-unquote religious. This is the mark of those devoid of the Spirit, because the Spirit will never contravene His Word. But instead, the Word is the things of the Spirit, if you will, revealed to us. And so we have an objective standard to measure our own souls and false ideas like the one I just said, and that, therefore to never put them up on a church sign. Uh, but instead to put up the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Something like that. So if anyone wants to go on a guerrilla campaign and swap out the letters on the sign, I'm not telling you to do that, but I also won't report you to the authorities. All right. People devoid of the spirit versus those who show mercy with fear. On the other hand, what does showing mercy with fear look like? We go back to our text and we find that the holy are encouraged to do things like this in Jude, to snatch others from the fire. Excuse me, I lost my bookmark. And also to show mercy with fear. We covered the snatching others from the fire last time we were in this text. And it's really profound to see how Jude likely draws on the context of some of his other references, including the blast radius of God's judgments in Sodom and Gomorrah. When the Spirit went in, uh, sent his angel messengers to grab physically by the arm uh, Lot and his family and remove them from the premises of the judgment of God, this was an illustration and a literal example of snatching others from the fire. Of course, the spiritual example of refusing to be snatched by the fire is pictured by Lot's wife. She was physically removed, but her heart remained in Sodom. And therefore, because she refused to submit to God through his gospel and objective truth, pulling her from the wickedness that Sodom represented, when she looked back or aligned her soul in desire to return, she herself was destroyed, salted like the rest of the area, and turned into a pillar of the same. So this, uh, we are those, uh, you know, who are we then? Are we Lot's wife? Or are we those who are called to go in and to reach the lost, even our children, parents, within our home, to snatch them from the fire and to pray that they would submit to the objective authority of God's word applied through our parenting or to share the gospel with the unbeliever? Of course, that is what we are called to do. Furthermore, we are to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So 
What does showing mercy with fear look like, we might ask? Let me give you a technical phrase, and then we'll expound. Showing mercy with fear, in part, recognizes the covenantal preconditions of mercy. So mercy is not granted arbitrarily or on a whim. It's not something in a bubblegum machine that you can go up and put a quarter of your works in or a quarter of anything in, turn the handle, and out comes God's mercy. This is not a view of mercy. No, mercy with fear recognizes that mercy is available only when the conditions of covenant are met. There must be judgment and justice for sin. There must be the death, which is the wages of sin paid in order for God to be just. There is a threefold reference to mercy in our text. Mercy is a theme for Jude. He says, we are those waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He says, we have mercy on those who doubt. But he also qualifies these by saying, we are to show others mercy with fear. So recognizing the covenantal preconditions, the cost of mercy, allows us to, to rejoice in what God has saved us from and to proclaim salvation to others without taking cheaply or disregarding the cost of mercy and grace. Mercy and grace must never be considered apart from fear and reverence. What is the condition of mercy? Well, the answer is spread before us in the elements of the Lord's table today. What was the covenantal precondition? What was the necessary cost for us to receive mercy? It was the slaughter of the perfectly innocent, God-made flesh, second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, when his body was broken and his blood was shed. At the Lord's table, we remind our souls that in the fear of God, that the mercy that has been shed abroad in our hearts and that is new every morning has come at this eternal and excruciating cost. I hope we never grow tired of hearing this reminder, and I hope we never grow too familiar with returning to the Lord's table. The atoning death of a perfectly righteous substitute in our place was necessary for us to be forgiven. The promise and the hope of mercy should never be offered to others or presumed for ourselves without realizing its gospel requirements, its gospel conditions. At this point, we could hasten to draw a distinction between common grace. God has mercy and grace in a common sense, in a common way upon the world, in an ordinary way. That is to say that God's mercy has spared us judgment even in this nation, though we woefully deserve it. But that mercy too comes at a great cost, and that mercy is different than particular mercy or particular grace. We must remember that just because God has been patient with America, though she deserves Sodom-like destruction, it does not mean that that mercy will be extended indefinitely to the individual when he one day stands before the judgment seat of the Almighty. We get a false sense of security. if We forget that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun and a day of judgment appointed for all men. When it comes to our particular accountability, common grace does not save. It just, in God's mercy, allows us the opportunity for one more breath to turn to Him, to repent of our sin, and to embrace the preconditions of mercy. So let us do so. 
if we have not turned to him yet, and let us offer that to others and preach the gospel clearly if they have not turned to him yet. And when we do this, what are we doing? We're grabbing the wrist of the unbeliever. We're snatching them from the fire. Whether or not they submit to the Lord and to his word is a matter of their own souls. And again, the indwelling of the Spirit based upon the regeneration. Nevertheless, we are those who are to show mercy with fear and to not take lightly the conditions of the covenant. It's available only at the immeasurable cost of Christ's blood. By the way, and by way of application, this makes Christianity absolutely different fundamentally from other religions. Just to mention too, Islam and Catholicism. On Islam, the, the concept of the sovereign, Allah, forgives, quote-unquote, but he does so without reference to atonement. Jesus did not die. The, is, the Muslim finds that an offensive uh, statement. No one said, yes, Allah grants mercy, grants forgiveness, but he does not do so with reference to a substitutionary atonement. Well, we hasten to see the problem, don't we, in light of our text and the teaching of Scripture? This quote-unquote mercy thus renders this concept of God unjust. And God is perfectly just. And therefore, Allah, in the Islamic conception, is an idol. <clears throat> Any congruous merit of the sinner seeking assurance based upon their works, at least in part, again, is insufficient to satisfy the just demands of a perfect God. And therefore, on the Roman Catholicism conception of congruous grace, which means that we can contribute to the grace of God in part through our meritorious works, which go into a treasury that's accessible then uh, for, uh, on our behalf and is credited to our account, or if we need a little extra, prayers to the saints can be, uh, and upon their uh, hearing them and dispensing accordingly, extra grace, supermeritorious grace can be extended to those who pray to the saints and so forth. This again is a false religion. Why? Because it bases mercy not in fear, but on something less or something we can accomplish, something we can contribute to. And the answer is the perfect justice of a holy God can never be satisfied with a cheap price. And our works are filthy rags. They're garments stained by the flesh. They are a cheap price, and they could never satisfy the demands of a holy and perfect sovereign God because until God changes our hearts, they're always tainted by the corruption and the fall and the blood poisoning of sin. So therefore, we are not to be like this and embrace and entertain these kinds of ideas, but recognize according to Jude we are those who are to show mercy with fear. And what does that fear look like? It looks like recognizing the true cost of mercy comes at the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. And we can, never, we can never measure up to that standard. In part to contribute, and that standard is non-negotiable. It's either paid by Jesus on our behalf or by our own eternal destruction in hell. Finally, what does showing mercy with fear look like? It looks like, furthermore, taking sin seriously. Mercy is treated as license only when one does not fear the Lord. Mercy is treated as license, permission to sin, or a get-out-of-sin-free card, only when one does not fear the Lord. Is this sin forgivable? Well, the answer is yes, but we are to look to the cross. 
as I said before, the excruciating suffering of Jesus Christ is required for true repentance and worship. Think of that picture in the Old Covenant that was fulfilled when Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cruel cross in the wilderness, so to speak. Numbers 21, 5-9, the people, according to the way of Korah, again, rejected the authority of God through his mediating servant, appointed prophet Moses, rebelling, and so God sent fiery serpents to destroy them. And as the venom from the fangs of those sovereignly ordered snakes sunk into the arms of the rebels, one by one, they dropped like flies to the tune of thousands. This plague and pandemic of poisonous serpents was destroying the enemies of God. They cried out, save us, in God's uh, mercy and in his patience before they all died as they well deserved. An instrument picturing atonement was commissioned by God and then erected by Moses. And a bronze serpent was placed on a pole and all who looked to that fiery bronze serpent were spared from the venom of those agents of God's justice, the poisonous adder, the poisonous viper, snake, whatever they were. Herein is a picture of one who must be made a curse for us. That fiery serpent, we imagine, required the, the heat of the furnace in order for the metal to be melted and then to be shaped into this you know, picture of a serpent and then lifted up. All who are lifted up on a tree are accursed. It's a picture of a curse. It was a picture of suffering. This instrument, uh, this symbol, this sign required these things in order for people to look then to the excruciating costs of their own salvation, which required the fires of suffering and the shame of hanging on a tree in order to be saved. John associates this, of course, with Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of that picture of old, who became a curse for us and took on the shame of the judgment and sin that we deserved. And so when we look to him, we look to him as one who paid that price, who went through the fires of God's judgment on our behalf, who took on the weight of the sin of the world and the crushing burden of God's wrath with every stripe dug into his back and thorn crushed into his brow and metal point that pierced his wrists and feet. And so as we do so, as we look to Christ and realizing the cost, we are less likely by far to take sin flippantly when we recognize the price that was paid. And when we look to him, we see the cost that our wickedness required. Years ago when I was in college, I've used this illustration before, it's been some years, so maybe you've forgotten. We went to this place called a hell house. And basically it was like a, it's hard to describe. It was sort of like a Halloween-themed gospel presentation. And they spent, I'm telling you, hundreds of thousands of dollars. There's no way they could have come up. And they had took this entire warehouse and they restructured the entire thing to lead you through different scenes as if you were in a movie of the consequences of sin. It was a politically-themed um, you know, set of scenarios that year. And as we worked through this hell house and the debauchery of man's wickedness, and which was displayed before us became more and more apparent, it did produce that effect of, wow, the human heart really is disgusting. As you get further and further through this maze, you come to a point where Jesus Christ is pictured by this guy in a full bodysuit of torn flesh, and you cannot tell that this guy is not literally bleeding. And there's a guy spattered with blood with a shirt like this rolled up and a whip in his hands, and he's literally whipping this guy with this rubber skin suit on. Hard. And he comes over and gets in our face, our small group through this tour, and says, you whip him, you whip him. And 
I was shaking. I, I understood on one side of my mind that this was all a staged thing, but on the other side, I realized that this illustration was the most profound experience you know, that I've had in some time to illustrate the cost of my own sin upon Jesus Christ. And it helped to personalize what he did for me, that my sin whipped his back, so to speak. When we remember these things at the Lord's table, when we return to the cost of our salvation, we are much better equipped to show mercy and to receive mercy with fear. And thus, we have a vision for applying Jude's text, even in our uh, service today, as we gather for communion and celebrating his work on our behalf in a few moments. Second major point, and more briefly today, uh, Jude draws a contrast between those who stumble and those who hate even the garment stained by the flesh. We might ask this question, what do those who stumble look like? Or what is evidence of stumbling? What is stumbling? Verse 24, I draw this description of the ungodly um, from a passing reference as Jude goes into his doxology. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. What does stumbling look like? Well, Jude, we see, draws, as he has said, upon the apostles and their authority. And it seems that 2 Peter is one of those primary examples. In 2 Peter chapter 1, there is a prescription for those who will stand strong. Perhaps you remember, these are terms of fortified faith or supplements that the apostle says that we are to pursue in order to keep us from stumbling, if you will. It says 2 Peter 1.5, For this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness. He goes on, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. If these qualities are yours and uh, for those who are lacking them, he goes on to say he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He is so nearsighted that he is blind. Therefore, brothers, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Or we could say in Jude's words, never stumble. So thus using the apostle, as Jude instructs us to do, to fortify his own or to undergird and emphasize his own words. What do those who stumble look like? Or when do we know that we are in danger of stumbling? Well, it's those who claim a faith without virtue. Those who claim a faith that have no interest in knowledge of that faith. Those who are risking stumbling or falling, they're those who care little for self-control. They do not pursue steadfastness. They do not concern themselves with godliness. Brotherly affection is lacking. Love is absent from their heart. However, these qualities are ours and are increasing. They fortify us, strengthen our faith against those forces that would seek to derail, undermine, to discourage, and to deceive, and ultimately to render the church apostate, which means falling away from your once confessed faith. So those who stumble or those who risk stumbling, what do they look like? They have an unfortified faith. Jude gives a number of occasions for stumbling. Occasions for stumbling, according to Jude, are the false teachers and what they promote, what they proclaim. These are, in his words, the ungodly who pervert the grace of God into sensuality 
deny our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There are those for whom we must contend against, fight against, stand against, who, as we've said in summary language, seek to diminish or deny the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and authority of Jesus Christ. There is no shortage of stumbling blocks, if you will, in our world today. I was thinking about this, and I made kind of a list, and I'll probably spare you of that. It's kind of hard to identify them all, but I thought, what is a common theme that one might discern against stumbling blocks, occasions for stumbling, false teachings that are as prevalent today as they probably were in the days of Jude? Well, now, let me offer you this. Anytime there is a theology or a teaching that is an application or a preference looking for a theology, that is a red flag. Let me explain. There's people who do not want to speak with authority that God condemns homosexuality. Why? Because as I said before, this culture celebrates a virtue, the cause of the marginalized, and those who have sexual identities outside of the quote-unquote traditional norm are to be celebrated and advanced in civil rights demands that we give them all the privileges and all the affirmation of any other human sexual relationship. Well, this puts immense pressure on gospel proclaimers, does it not? It would be a much easier way to grow your church and a much less challenging call if I never really had to touch that issue as a minister. I wonder if there's any theologies, quote-unquote, that might be, give me kind of cause to do so. And so I kind of come up with a scheme. Well, you know, there really are two kingdoms. You might be familiar with this term. On the one hand, you know, there's the kingdom of the world, and that's really distinct from the kingdom of the church. I'm going to reserve my preaching to the things that refer to the kingdom of the church, and I'm going to arbitrarily assign the civil you know, affirmation of marriage in society to that other kingdom, and therefore not touch the issue. Do you see what I've illustrated in this? This is an application looking for a theology. It's a false teaching that just serves as a smokescreen and an excuse to avoid responsibility, to shirk an obligation, to indulge the flesh, or to entertain whatever's popular, whatever the pressure of the society might be placing on us today. And that's just one example. It's a prominent one, but there are many others. There are many others. I'll give you one more. Recently, there was a sort of tempest in a teapot within the reform community, my tribe, right? And they were challenging, technical language, sorry for the nerdiness, eternal functional subordinationism. And so there's this whole movement within some obscure, you know, kind of message boards online pushing back against the notion that Jesus is in any way eternally subject or underneath the Father, and sparing you the details of the theological nuances, what I sensed underneath this is that the real issue at stake was there are those within the church who are saying that God has ordered human relationships in a complementarian way. There are unique callings and duties, though equal in value, they're particular in call for a husband and wife, both in serving in the church and in their marriage and the people who stood upon this complementarianism would refer sometimes to the Trinity. You even see this eternal uh, functional subordinationism, if you will, this deference, this hierarchy of authority within the Trinity itself. Well, what I discerned in digging into this was that this was, an this was basically an application looking for a theology. The real problem was that people were influenced by modern egalitarian feminism ideas that really found offensive the categories of scripture which assign particular calls, duties, and roles when it comes to authority within the church or roles within the home and so forth. And so they're looking for the opportunity to blur some of those lines and thus they're entertaining these things. Now, 
I give you those two examples, and I want to hasten to say they are my conclusions based on my best attempts to, to apply the Word of God and to discern. But I just give that to you because I could have missed something and I can be wrong. However, the Word of God is always correct. But what I've illustrated to you is that you have a duty to do the same. When you hear a quote-unquote new improved idea, or there's a popular book selling around the periphery and it's breaking all the records, you know, within the Christian bookstore, The Shack comes to mind in recent years, some years ago. I remember opening that up, like, oh, this guy's getting a vision to God, time to, vision of God out in this cabin in the woods, time to get out the notes, because I knew, based upon his vision, he would be implying something, or stating directly, of God's nature and character. And as you read, sure enough, you found that his preferences and what he thought and assumed God was like, rather than what the scripture said, really governed this piece of throw-it-in-the-trash worthy fiction. And so, anyway, that's another example. But this is what Jude would have us do. Take the eternal, immovable, fixed points of reference in the Word of God and then recognize, if I follow this, it could lead to stumbling. Or if I follow that, it could really seriously cause me problems and the church down the road if we apply it consistently. Uh, What to those, uh, last point this morning, those who stumble versus those who hate even the garment stained by the flesh. We've covered what do those stumble look like or what are some stumbling influences. I'd like to conclude this message by emphasizing this. The holy are those who hate garments stained by the flesh. What does this look like? I'm debating whether there's time to turn there. I guess probably not. But would you in your study this week turn to Zechariah chapter 3? That entire chapter, just 10 verses as I recall, has two pictures in prophetic form. The one describes Israel as a brand plucked from the fire, recalling Jude's words, excuse me, save others by snatching them out of the fire. The second is a picture of Joshua the priest who has filthy garments and trades them for pure raiment. What do those who hate the garments stained by the flesh look like? They look like that priestly vision in Zechariah that Jude no doubt has in mind. In this passage of Scripture, the spiritual condition of the people is represented by that priest figure. The spiritual condition of the people was sinful, wretched, and depraved, i.e. the stained and corrupted garments. But there was one day, on that day of atonement prophesied in that passage, and on that day, as we said before, the conditions of atonement satisfied and fulfilled those dirty robes were exchanged for the white and pure raiment. So who are those who hate even the garments stained by the flesh? They are those who have realized, like Joshua the high priest, typologically, that we were once wretched, lepers, decrepit, depraved, corrupt, and that the disease-ridden garments of our sin rendered us outside of the camp of God's people. You know, the left uh, today or people who celebrate virtues, you know, of their own design rather than the scriptures, you know, you know kind of that uh, so-called civil rights religion that I referred to before. They look at the Old Testament and think, oh, what a horrible, corrupt system where the leper has to be held outside of the camp. That was a picture, by the way, a picture of the wickedness of the human heart that renders us outside of the camp. Otherwise, the disease of our sin will be transferred to others and will corrupt the whole. And this disease, without an atonement, without a sufficient Savior, could corrupt everyone and had to be dealt with in extreme kinds of ways. 
there was a Savior who was born one day who was not touched by the corruption of sin and the radioactivity of the wickedness of sin did not apply to him. In fact, the situation was, reserved, was reversed. Did you ever notice in Jesus' ministry, it wasn't that when he touched a disease or dead thing, he was corrupted, quite the opposite. When he touched the diseased or the dead, they rose from the dead, they were instantly healed. This is why, because Jesus Christ was a sufficient payment, he came and his ministry was, if you will, that day of atonement and that moment when the satisfaction of the conditions of atonement came when he hung on Calvary. This was the key for the wickedness, the corruption of the sin-stained garments to be exchanged for the white robes of raiment. So what do those who hate garments stained by the flesh look like? They look like sincere guests at the Lord's table. Remember the parable, Matthew 22, that white raiment, that robes of righteousness, love them, embrace them, wear them, be proud of Christ, boast in him, love his word, love his purity. In Revelation chapter 7, this was our verse this morning, our worship text, and it describes the kind of clothing that I'm talking about. After this I looked, John says, and behold, a great multitude, and no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If we love our whitewashed robes the blood of the at the, uh, due to the cleansing power of the blood of the Lamb, then we will, conversely, on the same hand, we will hate the robes or the garments stained by the flesh. Ask yourself, as you approach the Lord's table, things that you've indulged, that you've embraced, that you've entertained in your soul or pursued in your life, is this a garment stained by the flesh? Is this a garment marked more by sin than by my salvation? When I stand before the Lord, what will I be clothed in? The righteousness of Jesus Christ, paid for by the cleansing power of His blood. Today, as we come to the Lord's table, we have much to be thankful for and much to consider. Remember that the robes that render you presentable before the Lord of glory came at the cost of the elements of this meal pictured before you today. As a worship team returns to the front, we will uh, in a moment and open up the table for those who are believers. Let us transition in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to recognize the foundation of our hope and to do it in several ways. We have sung praises to you for saving us. We've heard your word proclaimed so far as it's been rightly divided from the scriptures. And now before us in these elements, Lord, we are partaking in a ceremony that reminds us the cost of our salvation. Impress these things on our souls that we might be changed into the image of Christ our Lord more this week as a result from glory to glory, even by that indwelling Spirit of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.